This podcast has now been referenced in keynote speeches at Arabia HQ, Architects Journal, BD Online, and GB News. Hello, Jason here. Before I start the podcast, I would just like to share some news. The Brock Architect podcast is now raising money for the Architects Benevolence Society. And I have set a target of £1,500 by December the 15th, 2023. Please consider donating as you never know when you yourself would need help. Links in the show notes. Now back to the podcast. This is season two of The Broke Architect. I have a question for you. Are you an architect and are you f***ing broke? If the answer is yes, it's what I've suspected for many years, as I am indeed an architect myself. This podcast is about debt in the profession of architecture, and I want to hear from you. Are you just surviving month to month with no extra money for savings? Or are you seriously broke and in debt, and stress and worry about your income? Or does your wife, husband, or significant other earn substantially more than you which gives you a great life, given the ability to choose your clients, when you work and who for? Or have you attained financial freedom in architecture? If you're in the first two categories, surviving month to month or facing financial difficulties, how is this affecting your mental health? Are you suffering from depression or even despair? Please share, subscribe, and comment to support the channel. I have with me today Sudi Yilmaz, who is currently a part one architectural assistant in a practice, uh, well, in a London practice. Sudi studied for her part one degree at the University of Westminster and will return to study her MArch at the London School of Architecture in September 23. Sudi has a passion for architecture and is co-founder of Archidabble, which produces productive content for students, graduates, and young professionals in the architecture industry. And first, welcome to the second series of the Brock Architect Podcast. And I just want to ask, how are you today? I'm really good. Thanks, Jason. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm really good. And I'm really looking forward to, you know, talking with you today. I wonder, just for the listeners, you know, could you please tell me a little bit about your background and why did you want to study architecture? Um, so for those of you who may not know who I am from Archidabble, um, I'm Sude Yomaz. I am a part one architecture assistant who graduated from her bachelor's in architecture last year from, Lewet, from Westminster. Um, and for me, architecture has always been on my mind. So I wanted to study architecture from, I'd say from, for those that are common in the UK through my GCSEs. So that's, that's looking at secondary school. There was no particular reason, if I'm honest, it was just attractive. I thought to myself, the, the stereotypical math science combination. Um, so I decided I'll give it a shot. Initially it was interior design and no shade to interior designers out there. I just thought if I could do the outside, I'm sure I can do the inside. So I switched to architecture and yeah, I'm happy with my choice. Okay. um, Did you know the pay was while studying architecture? No. So I didn't think it was good and I didn't think it was bad. So I hadn't really done the research for when it was 
pay related although i would say the status of being an architect that label was a bit nice so i, I that was sort of that played in a role of actually wanting to do architecture too yeah i, mean, I hear that from so many people who um don't maybe maybe think that architects get paid well and when they actually get into the into studying and going out into part one this there's suddenly this realization which is partly why i'm kind of doing this podcast just to make people fully informed and aware of the situation i think the assumption of the people around me thought that i'd be getting paid higher you know it's an architect and i've got family abroad as well and hearing that I was going to do architecture, they would think, you know, oh, she's sorted for life, you know, the career isn't really, you, you need architects and so forth. Um, but yeah, later on, everybody started to realise after I entered part one that that wasn't the case, at least for now. Just please talk about your journey through architectural education to where you are now, and when did your real interest in architecture begin? Because I think that's a, an important point. You have this idea of what, being an architect is going to be like and then mm-hmm. you step into do your first degree and mm-hmm. things can change mm-hmm. um for me i was really again i was really adamant on studying architecture i knew that's what i wanted throughout my previous education i always saw things like my gcse's and my a levels as an obstacle to get to what i want so when i started finally studying architecture it was great. However, <laughs> obviously within itself, it's got its own obstacles. Um, and architecture education, the content was great for me in the beginning, but the surrounding um, environment wasn't exactly what I expected. Um, I was completely oblivious to the toxicity and how cruel it can get in architecture school. And I didn't, if, if it came about later on, I could somewhat justify it, but as a first year student, I really didn't understand why it was so hostile, let's say. (laughs) And thankfully, because I was so adamant and studying architecture from so early on, I didn't really allow these sort of experiences that I had at university to affect my choices, even though I had tutors question whether I was fit for architecture in the beginning. Um, which was quite upsetting because like I said I've been wanting to do it for so long and the last thing I want to hear is the person that's meant to be teaching me questioning whether or not I'm actually someone that should be here. Um, My real interest within the architecture field started I would say around third year um, where I really well it it stemmed from first year too um, through our architectural history lectures about panopticism which intrigues me about the way people act within certain types of architecture that's been designed. Mm. And so now I really enjoy the interaction between people, the users and the building itself, um, which is quite good because of where I am at my current practice. I see a lot of the client side and I see a lot of the contractor side. So the relationships there are quite quite dominant too so i may i'm able to interact with uh, with people quite a lot um but yeah architecture great and architecture education it's it's really well sugar-coated before you actually go (laughs) you don't hear anything about um how cruel it can get until you actually enter architecture school and you go through it yourself i mean some people don't but yeah i 
I, I didn't expect much of it. I had originally gone to a summer school right. to, just because, again, I was so intrigued and I was so sure that I was going to study architecture. I thought to myself, I might as well go to a summer school as well. So I went to an architecture summer school with the Bartlett, which was great. But you could instantly tell, again, sugar-coated. You only saw the good sides. You only saw smiles and happy faces and none of the late nights and the cruel comments that you could get. So it wasn't much of an eye-opener, if I'm honest, when I look back. But it was a great experience. And I would highly recommend people to go and do a summer school if they're willing to do architecture and they're really sure of it. Mm, Sounds like you're describing for some people who haven't gone through it, like some sort of boot camp. Um, Yeah. 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 Well, what are your thoughts then on whether the traditional um, part three route to qualifying as an architect in the UK Mm -hmm. is outdated and exclusive? You know, what are your thoughts on that? Um, This is kind of partially why I decided to study at the LSA, although it's regarded as a normal master's course. um, It's I would say that the syllabus, the curriculum is much more dated to what the current field and the industry wants for those who are interested they can go onto their website it's really good um and i think it's nice that they only dedicate that let's say to master students in architecture and that's it so it's sole focus um i know that the arb currently is going through this transition to sort of reduce well eliminate the exclusivity of studying architecture in itself whether it be through finances your background because it is definitely an expensive course to do. Um, I think that's good, but whether or not it needs to be a minimum of a, what is it, like an eight year process minimum to be able to get your qualification as an architect, I don't know if it needs to be that long. Um, it, It does suck, especially because even once you've gotten the architect title, you're still not getting paid what you deserve. You're still, you, there's still so much learning to do, which is fine. Um, but I think the fact that we implicitly affect the lives of others so much, even though it's not direct like a doctor, um, I think it is definitely underrated and underappreciated the amount that we do. And again, the eight year process, some of which can take much longer, is actually pretty hard to do it in eight years. That's my intention at least, but we'll see. It is outdated. Um, but I do appreciate that there's some light and actual acting on the conversation now with the ARB and to try and get rid of the part one, two, three process and make it more open to others that want to study architecture, which could have purely because of, I think many of the people that stray away from architecture is purely because of the finances. I do appreciate student finance, you know, for students who are here, but you've got international students You've got students who sometimes are not able to qualify for student finance, but Mm. on top of the tuition fees, grants, even in a year, will go towards software, towards model making, towards something as simple as travel, which in London is quite expensive, um, accommodation and so forth. So it does add up. And yeah, lots of people end up not doing it and they don't follow through to part three because it's just way too expensive. No, that's a really good answer. And I was just thinking while you were answering that question, that comparison with doctors is often, um, say, you know, saying obviously they're, they're first saving lives, but the hospitals 
and the clinics are all designed by architects and if they're not designed correctly you've got a huge problem as well so I, I, I think the that argument doesn't really doesn't really work you touched on debt there on top of the nine thousand a year to attend um, a university degree or a master's what other costs can you expect when studying architecture so dependent on the university I would say some universities like mine, if you was to use computers on site on campus, um, some software are on there, so you don't actually have to pay if you want it, although that never works out because obviously you're working from home too. For me, my main bank burner, let's call it, was modeling. Um, modeling materials are extremely expensive and we at Westminster had a model shop which was cheaper than what was out there but dependent on the material again it can get really really expensive printing thankfully this is the one thing that was good about covid i think everybody had an epiphany that they realized that we don't need to print as much as we did and um, because in my first year before covid so my first year up until march of my first year we were in campus and then march onwards which was just before our final correct everybody went online so we weren't printing at all and it was not only efficient it was cost efficient time efficient it was the stress of everybody printing at the same time in our print shop at university was was just unbearable um sometimes you were not guaranteed to have your prints in time there were times where printers just didn't work and you had no option b and especially at, at campus, we also had TVs in every studio. So it was it just didn't make sense as to why we just didn't completely just connect to it yeah. and present on 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 the TVs. <clears throat> especially for a course who which was so adamant on sustainability. It just doesn't make sense to me why we're printing so often, because those sheets just get scrapped afterwards because you're going to get feedback and you're going to change things. So yeah, printing was a was a was another banner software i was able to get away with all the trials <laughs> i didn't spend too much money on software um probably just the adobe adobe sets that you would be getting of which has a student discount so that one's not too bad yeah. um but other other stuff which um, i hate to say it but yeah trials because they're way too expensive to buy um i know some universities give uh, each student a, a sum of money a lump of money to go towards um, modeling and software um, we didn't have that westminster although i know when i go to the lsa that is something that i'll have which is great other than that for someone like me i was coming to university every single day um, in my third year uh, that includes bank holidays christmas i was there every single day i only probably skipped probably a handful of amount of days either because of tfl strikes or i was there. <laughs> that was it um, so if I look back at my travel, even though I had travel cards, it was so much money going towards just travel. And considering I'm somewhat central, you would regard me as somewhat central. It only took me 30 minutes, 35 minutes to get to university by train. Right. I was paying so much money towards TFL. And I know some people who live in like zone six and five, they were paying even more than I was. But yeah, it's, it's I think, it's printing, 
and travel that's really really expensive i was thankful to not have to pay anything for accommodation again because me and my parents we already live in london mm. um, so I, I scraped i scraped the accommodation <laughs> department but again i know lots of people who are paying quite a lot for accommodation too um, especially when there weren't any rooms in student accommodation they had to rent privately and share amongst other people um, which again, by choice, you could be as close as you want to university, but regardless, London fees for accommodation are just going to be expensive, no mm. matter what you're going to get at the end of the day. It sounds like as well, there's no time to even have a part-time job, you know, to earn any money. Yeah. Some people who did, um, something that I look at and I think to myself, how? Because to me, if I had free time, it was going to go towards university. I had no social life, if I have to be honest. Um, and it was a choice. I could have. Some people might mistake that as bad time management. I beg to differ. It's purely because I wasn't going to be satisfied with a pass. And I didn't want to get average grades. And that's not what I was paying all that money and tuition fees for just to get a pass. So I put in the extra effort to get a higher grade. And for someone, for me, and I'm sure many people can relate, nobody in my family had gone to university before. I come from a minority ethnic background. So it was all the more harder because everything was being done for the first time and nobody in my household could relate. I barely saw my family and I have a friend who's really close, my co-founder. We saw each other more than we saw our families. There were times where even though I've lived with my parents, I wasn't seeing my dad in days in a row because our times just didn't match up. I wasn't having any family meals. It was pretty bad when you say it out loud, but mm. if you ask me if I regretted it, no, because I did have fun doing architecture at university and especially because of COVID, all of my second year was online practically. So going back into the studio and being there every day, I had absolutely no complaints and I'll do it again. Maybe manage my time a little better so I had stuff to do outside um, of just design studio and so forth. But yeah, it was, it was a- It's intense, it's intense. Yeah. The question I get asked by a lot of people who want to study architecture, software. So, you know, were you taught how to use this software that, you know, people use, uh, Rhino, um, you know, all the different types of software that you would be expected to use to get good grades? Because let's be honest, hand drawing's not gonna cut it anymore. No. So there was an effort, a very slight effort at Westminster to teach digital skills. In my first year, we had a module called digital skills. <laughs> right. And I don't, it was not effective at all, of which I think now uh, the department has realized and they're trying to change it. Um, and looking at students' work in the first and second years, it seems to be working. However, for us, we were taught the Adobe Photoshop Illustrator InDesign through a lecture format. And off the bat, that's, that's that my sirens were going off because you can't teach. I, it just doesn't make sense to me how we're in a lecture hall and we were being taught how to use InDesign. This is on the assumption that everybody has a computer, yeah. that that's one assumption of which some people didn't. They used the ones that were, you know, built in in studio. This is the assumption that people had the software downloaded. There were so many assumptions being made before you even entered that lecture hall. Even something as simple as that lecture hall specifically that we were in didn't have any plug sockets. So you had to make sure that your computer was charged up and it could last 
however many hours that lecture was. It was just so badly managed. Um, the intention is great, but it was just so poorly managed. And it just so it was just so badly executed. I practically learned nothing in those lectures of which I look back and I'm thinking I could have done this by myself with tutorials online. So what made the difference to have to have a module for it and, and a tutor just saying step by step, this is what you do, this is what you have to submit to prove to me that you can use the, the software. And it, it just wasn't practical at all. And I, people who know me will know how adamant I was on how just this lecture format for tutorials and it just didn't make sense. For me, it's rounded tables, people on there, people walking around answering questions when you don't know how to do something. That's what made sense to me. And you're not going to do that when you're sat in rows in front of a lecture, lecturer. That, that just wasn't going to happen. Um, and inevitably, you could see the results. I personally was, as, as a first year, I would go around and I would say how much I hated Photoshop because I knew how much it was capable of but I just couldn't use it because I just mm. couldn't wrap my head around it. I didn't have any sort of graphical knowledge beforehand going into university. So I didn't get it. And it was really bugging me that I could see people who, obviously when you enter architecture school, some people are much older. They've already probably got a degree in something else. Um, there's lots of people who have probably done graphic design or they've done a year out or they've done a foundation year. So when you enter architecture school, everybody's digital skill set is already different by default. Some people are already really good. Some people are doing it for the first time, which like myself, that was me. So it really bugs me when I would see lots of people who had already had previous experience in the software just get better visualizations and presentations purely because, you know, we just started at a different, different level. And I'd hope that these digital skills lectures that we had was to eliminate this vast difference in skill set. Just didn't do what it was meant to do. So I really was upset by the end of uh, first year and second and third year. I just taught myself because it just wasn't going to happen. Nobody was willing to teach it. Um, During COVID in my second year, there was an effort to make online sessions with one of the tutors on the course who he was very proficient um in technology and software yeah but again it was still a lecture format you know he we're looking at his screen and we're just replicating what he's doing if i have a question i have to type it in and then hope that he's going to see it at the right time or i have to button and to ask and i'm waiting everybody's waiting up on the tutorial what we realized as well the turnout rate for these tutorials that were online were slim to nothing um really? by second year we had i would say definitely over 100 students there were probably about 15 people who turned up to those online tutorials and it was purely because one people can't make the time it just doesn't work you know we have to juggle up so many modules we've got some people have part-time jobs like you mentioned yeah and when you just slap it onto the calendar or the weekly calendar, uh, weekly schedule that we have without even asking when we would want to actually have these lectures. It's just not effective and people didn't turn up and inevitably what happened is by the second semester, it just stopped. Like nobody was turning up, so they, they stopped it. Which meant for people like myself who did turn up, that the one thing that we, we were clinging onto is now not there as well. By second year, I realized this isn't gonna work. And I didn't expect in third year to be taught software anymore because we're third year students now. Um, 
So I just said to myself, let me set myself a target. This is what my visual is going to look like by the end. Okay, then I have to figure it out on how I'm going to use it. And now I absolutely adore Photoshop. It's like the <laughs> best body. I love it. Um, and yeah, and I, I will not give any credit to my education for it. It was purely a self-development process that allowed me to develop. Um, and yeah, it just, it just didn't work to be honest. And it sucks that one thing that makes you employable is the one thing that doesn't get taught in your education after all those fees and time and stress. You don't actually get taught how to do these things, which I see their argument. You know, it's it's a practical skill that you're inevitably going to learn when you go into practice. Yeah, well, you know, the people are turned down because they don't know how to use software. Yeah. Um, and you can see that they can't use software because of the deliverables in their portfolio. You know, you can see that they lack in certain aspects. And because your portfolio is what's going to get you your job. Um, and they, they, I would say there's, you know, a correlation between skill set, digital skill set and your portfolio and what it looks like. It's just, it's just not great for people who are applying for a job and they could be great designers, but it's purely digital skill set that's, that's causing them to not be able to get a job. And even the drive, I would say for me, when I was applying for my current role, I knew that I didn't know what program that they were using. They were using ARCHICAD, which is a BIM program. So we've, we've completely stopped CAD. I was only just getting started and used to CAD. Um, and now, you know, there's a shift to BIM and BIM is not even a question at my uni. Like there was no questioning of, should we teach the students BIM programs? Because they were still trying to mm. catch up on things like Adobe, which is by default, like you should know how to use it. That's what the industry now wants. You shouldn't be struggling to use Adobe programs now, which in itself is, is a different topic. But now there's a switch to BIM. And what we realized was we at Westminster, we also have an architecture and technology course which is for technologists, obviously. And they were learning BIM. They were learning how to use Revit. And I'm thinking, why why, why are we not learning Revit? Because yes, they're architectural technologists and they get accredited by different bodies. But if our industry, the architecture industry, is re requiring architects to now know Revit, there's all the yeah. more of a reason why they should be coexisting in itself, where we're also learning Revit. But we haven't even got things like CAD down, let alone Revit um, and other BIM programs. So it's now like the, the part one placement, the part two placement year out that are going to try and fill in those gaps that we have, which is happening like myself in my part one. I was able to learn how to use ARCHICAD, but I had the passion and the drive and the willingness and the keenness to learn a new software. Sometimes in education, in undergraduate, you become demotivated because you realize, you know, I have so many ideas and I know what it wants and what I want it to look like, but I just don't have the skin, skill set to do it. Yeah. Um, and this frustration, lots of people, they just start meandering and they just stray away from architecture. I know lots of people, even from first year, who switched over to graphic design because you actually get taught, you know, the one, the key is software that you use, you have to use it throughout your education, 
Whereas with us, it's like you've got sketching, you've got hand sketches, you've got modeling. So you never really become an expertise on one of those things because you have to sort of have a good, good skill in all of them and all rounder. And it's your part one placement and your part two placement and post part three to fill in the other gaps, which I just feel like shouldn't be the case because you can do it on other courses. You can teach yeah. Revit, you can teach <clears throat> other programs in other courses. Why not architecture? And you just get faced with a bunch of excuses. So, oh my yeah. word. I think that just, just before I move on to the next question, my, my thoughts are on this. You've learned Archi, is it Archicad? Yeah. Yeah. The, the majority, I think, in definitely in the north of the country is Revit. And yeah. so you would be, if you go back after your, you've finished your M, M Arch and go into yeah. practice, you, you're limiting yourself already because some practices will say, oh, we want someone with Revit experience and you've not got that. Uh, it sucks. <laughs> um, and I know lots of people can turn around and say, okay, but what's stopping you from teaching it yourself? nothing but why have i spent all this time and money and gone through all this stress only to still not be employable by the one body aka my university um teaching me how to become you know employable people it just doesn't feel like it should be something that's falling onto onto my responsibility only i think it's a 50 50. i put in the effort you teach me how to do something it's quite simple um and i don't know why that mentality hasn't been put in place um because i know lots of people say architecture school is where you should be creative okay but you can again do both these things at the same time and there's just a there's a more of a focus to be like abstract and you know not set back by limitations when you're designing only to go back into the workplace and you realize i can't do any of the things that i've done at university and I actually need to accommodate for the fact that I don't know how to use the software and so forth. I was lucky because, again, I didn't have any experience in BIM. Um, my argument now is that when I do um, apply for a new workplace, which I am currently doing, is that you, I present myself as just keen to learn. And the fact that I have now got a BIM program somewhat in the bag, mm. that the transition won't be too bad. Yeah. That's my argument. I don't know if people are willing to listen to it and take it into consideration. We'll see. Um, but to expect at least a part one to know how to use Revit is just, it doesn't make sense to no. me because there's literally people who are Revit professionals, like they're experts, and that in itself is a job role. So why are we now expecting architects to now know how to use Revit? Is it efficiency? Because if you have one person who can do the architecture and the Revit, then we don't need two people. We don't need an architect and a Revit, you know, a BIM coordinator, or BIM professional, whatever mm. their role is called. So, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 a very it's a very corrupt <laughs> expectation, I would say, of architects and part ones and part twos. What well, can, can the tutors use this software? You know that they're expecting you guys to use i mean i'm not i'm not just talking revit i'm talking photoshop the whole thing yeah Yeah. um i think during covid this really came out um because i'm I'm going to leave architecture software for a second there were tutors who were struggling to use zoom teams (laughs) and it's it's yeah i mean if we're struggling from the the easier stuff excel 
you know, Word, like it's it's very simple things. Like Excel is a very major one. We had a major hiccup last year um, where we had grades uh, published to everyone um, accidentally because an Excel file was not exported as a PDF, but an Excel again. And for those Excel users out there, when you export as an Excel, you can see all the tabs at the bottom. And what had been done was all the tabs were the students' names. So you could flick through to everybody. And it sucks, especially because for that module specifically, about 80% of the year had failed. Um, so it's nothing to be proud of either. It wasn't good to find out that you got such a low grade and the whole of the, you know, the, the year group could see. And we had waited like, I think five weeks and the feedback was crap sorry for my language but it was really bad you know we're talking five bullet points after five weeks of waiting thankfully it was a formative submission and nobody you know was too too stressed from it but the last thing that you want to expect is getting an email from your module leader who has now published all the results to everyone and um, that's the last thing that you want to expect did and you get an apology and listen to that <laughs> um an apology did follow over an online this portal that we used we got a, we got an apology you know it followed off up with excuses sorry but you know sorry but it, it, i just i think everybody could agree don't want to hear your excuses like you've made a mistake i couldn't care less what the reasoning behind mm. is especially because if we were to turn up with, to a crit with nothing i can't say sorry but it's as simple as that. You're going. I'm going to be penalised. You're going to mark me low. You're going to give me a zero. But in the, on the tutor side, it's not like that. And I get it. There's a hierarchy, but it's just demotivating. I felt so gutted that after five weeks of waiting, not only did I not get the feedback that I wanted, I didn't get a grade that I wanted. I also didn't get the treatment that I wanted either. Um, you know, there was no reassurance. It was more so like, let me save myself as a tutor first. And then I'll care about the students later on. Um, and I also have gotten information that this tutor has also done the same thing this year to the third year students with their greater, bigger modules, which wow. I, I just don't know why somebody who's clearly not proficient at doing their role effectively, why they just cannot be fired. And it, it and that in itself, I'm sure in the department, there's bias towards some tutors. You know, especially for those of which who have been at a certain department or a university for so long, it's harder to let them go. You're probably best buddies with like the head of the department. And, you know, there's always, there seems to be almost like this safety bubble for some tutors, which as someone who wants to go into academia too, I'd love to teach architecture um, at some point, be a design studio tutor. That's, that again, is putting me off because as an architect, as a, as an architecture student, there's already bias, there's already struggle there, and then you've got the bias and struggle within the department as a tutor. There's never a win-win situation from what it seems like, unless you're one of those tutors who've been in a department for so long. Um, it's almost like they're safeguarded, you know? There's absolutely every reason to have some people off the course, and they're just not booted off, and I have absolutely no idea why. Um, we were quite proactive. So this Excel situation, we reported it. We reported it to the head of the school. 
it was raised. We got an apology from the head of the architecture, architecture department and the head of the architecture and schools and designing cities and so forth that we have at Westminster. Um, and I remember after following that, we got an apology in a, at the end of a lecture, which followed on again. Uh, I'm so sorry for so-and-so, but, and I remember I stood up and I left that lecture and I was sat right in the middle and I was there like, don't care. I'm not here to listen to people's excuses. Um, yeah. And it's, it's followed up with things like, you know, when we were back in school, our grades were put on sheets of paper and a pin board and everybody could see what they got and what each other got and so forth. I really, I don't want to hear it. I don't really care. Like it's no. not back in those days anymore. Um, you know, especially if we're going to raise things like mental well-being, you know, you have zero idea on how much of an effect a, a single grade could have on a student. Uh, and if they're unhappy with it, the last thing that they want is for the rest of the school year to know what they got. So to be followed up with things like, sorry, but it, it was so, it, it was so, I literally left me speechless as it is right now. I, I had no words to say and how a grown adult could justify what they have done with excuses, or it would be just nice to get a sincere apology. It didn't even come, it didn't really come mm. from the heart, I could tell. And yeah, there was, there was, some friction after that, which continued. Um, but yeah, I didn't really give too much uh, crap to care because it was my third year and I was leaving. Um, but what, what seems to be happening is <clears throat> students who are in third year, which face these sort of issues because they are just leaving, they don't really care to raise it to a certain level. We tried and we were on the cusp of getting a meeting set up with all like the heads of departments and so forth to discuss what had happened and how we can improve moving forward. But this was mid second semester. I've got modules, I've got submissions, I've just submitted a dissertation. The last thing that I want to be handling is your department. Like I don't really want yeah. to be telling you how to do your job, quite, quite simply to put it. Um, it's quite simple. You just need to take on feedback. I don't really that saw the impact of things like, um, you know, end of year surveys that, this, that the university would hold where you anonymously put in um, your thoughts and how people can improve and how, you know, what they can do better next year. Because it's not even really taking with a pinch of salt. I feel like they're just done so they can say, you know, we took on your tick feedback. Box. Yeah. But we never, yeah, it's just take box exercise yeah. for them. So, you know, we feel like we're being heard, but we're not because none of it was acted on until very recently, where as um, back in second and third year, I was also a part of the Architecture Society um, and we raised it as a society. Um, we got faced with things like, you haven't got representative data to tell me that we need more focus on digital skills. And I was saying to myself, forget Westminster for a second and the students here, it is a countrywide situation. I don't think I need to give you evidence anymore. If it's a topic that's raised between oh, architects, yeah. part twos, part ones, I don't think I need to rock up with certain data that needs to be representative of which the data that we had showed that we needed proper, proper education focused on digital skill set. Um, but yeah, we got faced with, with feedback, you know, criticism, which wasn't constructive because 
it, it's it's you're telling me and we almost basically got told that you know what you're demanding for i don't see an interest in it and this focus that you want on digital skills i don't think that's the general consensus at the school which it definitely was um and then after graduating we found out that you know there's workshops being held there's digital skill set dedicated you know workshops workshops again not lectures which is great good for the students that are there right now and zero credit to the amount of you know pushing that we did when we were students there and the full credit is now going to those department members which yeah they did set it up but you needed that push and it had to come from the students and since the majority of the students didn't have the time as a you know a student body as a society we've raised it with everyone and yeah lo and behold it's been acted on which is great but we couldn't take advantage of it we can't take advantage of it at all as alumni congratulations to the students that are still there i don't know what to say it's just it's, it's just sad um, but i hope they take advantage of it because we didn't have it i don't know how it's being managed and so forth i'm sure there's still flaws in it yeah, I mean, other than digital skill set, design tutors, majority of them never knew how to use software. If they did, they never taught you because that's not what they're there for. They're there for to design it. Well, that's what it's, you know, that's the general idea. They're not meant to teach you your skill set. It's more designing aspects, how to design and so forth, which in itself is so subjective. But yeah, it was it was a reliance on the people around you. We were lucky. I had a friend who was doing architecture and environmental design. Um, and on that course, again, lots of different courses. On that course, you are taught things like Rhino and Grasshopper and like Ladybug, the, the addition plugins, because they need to run things like simulations mm. for architecture and environmental design. And luckily I had a friend in there and that's how my journey into Rhino started. You know, that's how I learned Rhino. I didn't learn it through the, the crappy tutorials that we got or the, or the, you know, the, the deliverables that we had to produce. I learned Rhino through a friend who was willing to give up her time to teach us the very, very basics. Like I got through majority of second year with like 10 commands on Rhino. It didn't take much. And I was able to produce the items that I wanted, axonometrics. It was like, it's so sad that once you realize how to do these things, it wasn't actually that difficult. And it, it, could, it could take one afternoon, an hour, and people will know how to 3D model. That's it. But yeah. it, it, just, it just seemed to be something that was really difficult. And it just couldn't be implemented efficiently to the whole year. Um, and yeah, anyways, third year, again, self-development, majority of the tutors didn't know, majority of the students, again, the tutors didn't know how to rock things like uh, online, because uh, we had tutors that would join sometimes online, because they weren't able to make it or they had COVID. And yeah, they didn't know how to use um, Teams, Zoom, something as simple as realizing that they're not muted. Oh, that they are muted and they don't know how to unmute themselves. Like it's, it's the lots basics. of time you know, trying to explain to, I get it, an older generation, you know, they have, they don't know how to use things like Zoom. Okay. But I expect as a tutor for my tutor to learn these things Upscale. because I yeah. need it. Yeah. You need to be in, in tune with the times is what I'm going to say. If you want to be able to continue doing this job, because it has a deep impact on the students. And the last thing I want is somebody's incapabilities affecting my education. Um, 
But yeah, there were some tutors I did know, but again, they're not going to sit down and have a tutorial with you on how to teach you Rhino because now every other studio has now had a tutorial session on their design. So we've now delayed hours by a week. Um, some tutors, very, very minimal, did make the effort to get other people in um, and have, uh, you know, take up one design studio, not a whole day as well, maybe lunchtime. Um, everybody brought along their lunch and they would sit down and listen to this person and you can ask questions. But I was not lucky. I don't have that sort of tutor. Many of them didn't. Yeah, it was the tutors. If they know, they don't teach it. And if they don't know, then they can't teach it. That's sort of the situation wow. that we were in. It sounded as well from what you were saying there that it was a student-led initiative, this digi- yeah. uh, you know, the digital skills. Um, but your tutors have took uh, credit for it. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what's happened. Wow. <laughs> and, and I'm sure that they beg to differ. They'll, they'll probably say something else and so forth. But if the conversation was never brought up and then we came as a student initiative to bring up the question, the conversation, only for it to get shut down because of something as simple as not having representative data. Um, and then lo and behold, now we're acting on it out of nowhere. I don't know, it, it, it just doesn't add up to me. So yes, I would say definitely it was a student-led initiative, which got absolutely no credit for, for his efforts. Well, if any of the tutors want to come onto the podcast and give their side of the story, they're welcome to. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, let's, let's go on to crit, the dreaded crit. You yeah. know, did you get practicing architects listening to crits and what was this experience like for you? So in my second and third year, yes, I did. Not in my first year. If we don't count our tutors, which are also practicing architects. Yeah. Um, although they are obviously senior projects every week, so they are somewhat biased and the fresh in your eyes would always be good. Um, I found crits, and this might not be a popular opinion, I loved crits, and I love talking, and I would much prefer, you know, the marking is also done on crits, because I think it's just a bit more effective, because when you're in practice, you don't just give sheets of paper to your client and expect them to know. You are always sat there, you're in a meeting, you're there online, in person, even on emails, you're always typing what it is that they're looking at. So crits are a better representation of what will happen in practice, I would say. Is it, does it need to be as intense and as cruel? No, definitely not. Your client isn't really going to turn to you and tell you that your design is rubbish. Like they'll just say, you know, I'm not fond of this idea, could we try something else? It's always a pleasant environment. Whereas crits are never usually like that. And for people who are less keen on presenting, um, it's definitely a struggle for them. And you're not exactly taught how to present your design. It's sort of something that comes up whenever you have crits and your tutorials and your formative crits and your final ones. It's just because of practice, you end up learning what to say, what not to say and how to present. But yeah, for me, I liked it. I did witness some horrible crits. I had some horrible crits myself. Um, tell me about one of them tell me uh, oh so this is first year and it was the last final crit which which was online first ever online crit um i had my crits and it was an okay crit so the experience in itself was fine but this is the one time that i shedded tears in architecture school and it wasn't because of uh, because i was upset or angry it was purely of relief 
Um, and it was right. relief because I was finally saying goodbye to a certain tutor that I didn't have to see again. I tried my best to present as confidently as possible, even if my design wasn't fully developed, which is something that I, I recommend students to do. Um, because if you give the impression that you're not confident in your design, do not expect the panel to be convinced. Because yeah. if you're if you're already you know nitpicking at your design and selling people, you know, I need to develop this a little further. You've just opened a door for them to criticize you and why it's not a good design because you've just admitted that you haven't. It's an e- you've given them an easy way in, it's, yeah. Exactly, yeah. it's like giving it on a, on a tray for them to just absolutely go ham on you. And um, yeah, for correct again, I've learned very easily, very quickly that I need to sound as confident as possible. Um, I need to know exactly what I'm talking about because the hints of suspicion will give away the fact that I'm not even confident in my own design. Which again, it's in practice, it's the same. If you sound like you've got doubts, your client's not going to be convinced. Um, So I would say my experience overall is very good. Um, I, again, because my tutors could see that I was a student who put in the effort, who, you know, spent so much time on her work, regardless of if it's first quality, um, I always got constructive criticism and good written out notes and so forth to work on it. So my my experience with critics were good, but I can see how for some people, there were multiple people who came out of their critics crying, um, whether it be because they got really bad feedback, um, whether it is because they were not satisfied with their work, so and they had to show it. Um, so to do that in front of a panel with people that they've never met before. The last thing that you want to do is give a bad impression of your work to these people who have come from outside as practicing architects. Yeah. Um, because for all you know, they could be the next person that's going to offer you a job. So you want to keep it as good as possible. Um, I did have one crit in third year. It was a technical crit and I was not ready. And I admitted it as well. I wasn't ready, but I wasn't ready because I didn't have the material physically there. So my ideas were fully developed. I could have a conversation on it. It was well planned out, but I just hadn't, I hadn't produced the visual aspects to understand what I was talking about, which I already accepted going into that crit. I knew what I was going to hear. I practically begged for our technical tutor to join along to my technical crit because I had a great bond with him and he was a great tutor and it was constructive every time he spoke it wasn't it wasn't demeaning it wasn't you know it wasn't cruel it was good feedback that i was going to get and because he's the head of that department i thought what better way than to present to the person who's actually going to be marking that module um and i had him two external practitioners and i had our head of architecture department there which i did not get along too well with he had a very, and I told my technical tutor, do join because I know that it's not going to go as planned. And it's purely because I'm going to get criticism, but it's not going to be constructive. I had called it out before the, the career happened. Right. Um, and he came along and exactly what I said happened. And I was, you know, I, I it was to the, to the students in my studio as well. They were able to listen in. It was a very informal but formal presentation, I would say. No pinning up, um, but whatever material you had to explain your design, you would bring along. And the two panel externals came along and one of them, after my crit, turned to me, pulled me aside. She turned to me and she said to me, 
I don't get why he was so rude to you. And he was referring, she was referring to the head of the department. Um, she said, take it with a pinch of salt because he was being aggressive for absolutely no reason. Um, and to have an external say this, just solidified to me that, you know what? It's, I'm not the problem here. I can just yeah. tell I was the problem. Um, either he was taking it personal because we didn't have a good bond to start with because this had happened soon after the whole Excel situation, which he was involved in. But yeah, it, w- it was ridiculous. Uh, either he just, it wasn't professional whatsoever. And it was downright almost um, insults rather than constructive criticism. It's funny because then my technical tutor also pulled me aside and said, how did you know he was going to be like this? And I said, listen, I've had my fair share of interaction with this person now. I can tell that it's not going to be constructive whatsoever. So I'd much rather have somebody there who's going to give me that feedback that I need. Yeah. Um, so that was third year. But yeah, other than that, all my other crits went well. Some were mediocre, but every time it's a mediocre presentation or crit, um, I've probably already predicted how it was going to turn out anyways, because I know what I need to do. And if it's if I just didn't have the time, I don't have the time. But yeah, that technical one in third year, that external architect who stopped me and said he he was it was so uncalled for the way he was acting. I just knew for a fact, you know, I'm not going to even take this crypt into consideration because it wasn't it wasn't what I expected it to be. Um, but yeah, other than that, crits are okay. Just prepare and be confident. And if it goes bad and it's quite very, it's very easy, I would say, to distinguish whether it's something that's objective and is constructive or whether or not it's personal yeah. and it's, and it's, and it's stemming from something else. I could already tell immediately how it was going to go, which again, which is why I asked for a better tutor to join along who was willing to give up his time, which was great. But yeah, crits, crits, as you go along, you'll see. <laughs> and it's good, really, I think, that that you've got independent external people coming in that yeah. can can give that balanced approach and, and give you that feedback. And the balance is really important because the tutors, I think, then can't, they can't overstep the mark too much without being called out. So I, yeah. I, I love that example. So all part one students, part two students, listen to this podcast. You're getting some really good insights here. Do you believe that someone with great presenting and presentation skills is graded higher than someone who can't communicate verbally very well? Um, for me, personally, in my scenario um, and at Westminster, your presentation skills, so your crits are never really marked. Um, your sheets are marked. So what you've pinned up or whatever you're showing online is what is being marked. And I've touched on this very slightly. Again, because your final submission, you're not there. I would say it's the other way around. So somebody who can design well is more likely, I would say, to get a better grade than somebody who's got a mediocre design but can present it very well. Um, I know that we have the RIBA presentation exam, kind of like the formal exam, the assessment that we have RIBA members come along and you do a final crit for them and they're sort of judging whether or not your grade is sort of matching, you know, what what you're presenting. Um, I have no idea if the presentation part holds any account for it in that yeah. part. Usually, it, it'd be I would say somebody who can present very well um, is likely to do better in practice, I would say, especially if they end up being in the client relationship side. 
But if you're somebody who cannot communicate verbally what you've drawn physically, it's sometimes, you know, that there's, I would see that there's going to be issues with it because you need to be able to explain verbally to somebody who hasn't done architecture um, what it is that you're proposing because sometimes clients don't, not even sometimes, majority of the times, clients don't get plans and sections and elevations. That's why 3Ds are involved and sometimes they can be complicated. So you need to be able to explain well verbally as well what it is that you're designing so in education i wouldn't say that somebody who has great presentation skills is likely to get a higher grade however somebody who has greater presentation skills is likely to get more feedback on their design rather than somebody who's designed really well obviously at, at undergraduate it's very unlikely that you've got a perfect design don't think that there is anything like that anyway you'll probably get more criticism on how they presented it like oh, you should have spoken about this first because I didn't get this, so-and-so, which I would much prefer to get feedback on my design and my presentation skills um, because at the end of the day, my undergraduate is going to be marked on my pages, not how I presented it. That doesn't mean that presentation skills is underrated. It should def definitely still have a sole focus within the education. And mm. I would say it's something that needs to be developed regardless um, because you're always going to be interacting and in practice, I realise communication is just key. You need to be able to communicate all the time, whether it be about your design or not. Fantastic answer. AI, it's mm -hmm. um, it's being used, I'm sure, by students. Um, you know, you're going back into 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 that in September. You know, do you think yeah. this will be increasingly being used when you do return to university? I think so. Yeah. I think it's it's here to stay. It's not like a phase. I think it's definitely here to stay um, because I would say it's been able to be justified as another form of aid into architecture, not replacement. Sort of like how when CAD was first in introduced, you know, yeah. it felt like kind of cheating. You went from hand drawing to now the computer does it for you. But no, not really, because you still need to input data and you still need to actually instruct how to do something. Um, and it's still the same as AI. You need to be able to understand what you want. You need to be able to develop it further. And during that process, AI is there to you know, help you and aid you. And um, how you use it is more important than what it can do, I would say. If you're using like text AI to completely replace a whole dissertation, yeah, no, like, that, that, that is not good. Um, and that will inevitably get picked up on anyways. Um, but if you're having like a creative mind block and you've got some ideas, you're not able to really sketch it because maybe your sketching skills isn't as good as your, you know, your imagination, which happens. Um, you can easily type a prompt and, you know, get that push past that block that you've got. And then lo and behold, you realize, you know, oh, I could do this, I can do that. So it can be a good starting point. And I can definitely see um, my fellow, you know, future, um, friends at my MH course who might use it. I'm not against it. Um, I will only be upset <laughs> if it starts to get blown out of proportion. You know, maybe they start bringing visualizations as their final renders and it's completely AI that's done it. it, it it's just, I feel like that's when we start to lose our creativity and we start to be limited by AI. 
because we think, you know, this amazing image that a computer has generated, how could I top it up? You know, how could I produce something better? Which you'd be surprised, so many people can do it. Um, but yeah, I would see it being used increasingly as an aiding tool. I hope to only see it as an aiding tool rather than a replacement tool for anything. And I do agree that sometimes it is very time efficient. I've had my own play around with new um, AI tool in Photoshop in its beta version. And I was thinking to myself, if I had this at undergraduate, the amount of time I spent scrolling through Google Images. It's a firefly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. For, for images in certain perspectives, so it's PNG and so forth, like the amount of time I went scrolling, I could easily just put a prompt into Photoshop and it could find the images for me. That's when it's aiding, because time efficiency is, is at hold here. Um, so yeah, in circumstances like that, I would definitely say it's good. Um, but when it starts to get to a point where AI is doing the job, that's when I'll start to raise questions and be like, hmm, maybe we should, we should have some rules and regulations for AI as well. Yes, point. absolutely. Um, I, I love that response again. Um, how did the pandemic affect you while studying and what happened then when you returned back to the back to the university and back to the studio um pandemic i it was really upsetting again as someone who wanted to do architecture and she knew she wanted to do architecture for so long to be told that i now need to work from home was the last thing that i would want to hear um, especially when I'm still paying the full tuition fees and I'm not being able to take advantage of any of the facilities that the university has to offer. However, one thing that the university, which was good at doing, not department related, it was the whole university offering it to all students on the all courses, was that our library was still open 24 hours. Um, and you, what you, it was a simple system. All you had to do was book a table. It was sanitized before you got there. You would use it for however long you've booked it for. And before you leave, you would sanitize it yourself. It was a great process and I used it to the full capacity because the moment I tried to do work at home, didn't work because I'm a very um, space separating person. I, I associate my house and my room and my desk for not university work. It's, it's, it's like I, I, I don't enjoy associating my personal space with work and it wasn't productive I, it never was productive and um, so it was great to be able to distinguish workplace and home as two different things so i use the library every single day and um, i was still within the premise of university and i would do my work there and i was just so much more efficient so in that sense i was quite lucky and um, to be able to have two distinguished places still mm. um to do my work when it comes to going back to studio, because I was in the library the previous year, it didn't feel too different to me. It was just, the difference was I was just seeing more people with masks on, that was about it. Um, and apparently, I personally didn't struggle with this, but apparently, you know, people were able to see that this whole year and a half online has really impacted people socially, especially the younger years, the first and second years who are affected they didn't know anyone and they kind of struggled to make conversation within their studios. Everybody was sort of like their lone rider and they were doing their course by themselves, um, which I assume with time will get better. 
uh, especially for those who were least affected by COVID. But for me, when I came back into studio, it was a relief of finally, I can be in a design studio that's more collaborative and not a desk at the library by myself where you had to be silent. That's not really the environment that, you know, you should be designing in because there's so many times where I saw in first year and then later on in third year that we bounce off of each other. Yeah. It's as simple as walking down the corridor where the master students are. And I look at something and think, you know what? Maybe this is something that I can relate into my design. We didn't see that the whole of the year and a half I was online um, or in the library because there was no chance of conversation and collaborating, which was something that I loved about Westminster, which is why I chose to go there. It was open studios. Nobody has a dedicated desk, which I can see the flaws of, but you can really get over it Um, because you can work anywhere you want. You can easily intersect and weave into first, second, third years, interior designers, interior architect students, all the the other architecture courses and the master students. You could easily, there was nothing to stop you from going to see those and interact um, with the students. So it was great to return back to it. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was good. Um, and I hope to not have another pandemic ruin my March course. Yeah, I, I, it, it was a good learning curve and we've overcome it now. So back to somewhat normal. Yeah, and you touched on it there, you know, what experience did you have when you were collaborating with, with students um, at university? What, what was it like? Um, for me, it mainly stemmed from the society. So obviously there's an effort to collaborate with the department, which we've already gone through, um, which didn't go as planned. And we obviously held events with uh, practices and we had, you know, practitioners come through and we had quite a lot of big names, thankfully, to our events coordinator at the time. Um, She had lots of connections to people in Grimshaw. We had Orms come. At some point we had Zahadid Architects come along. So... It was great. We collaborated in that sense a lot. And um, as students, there was an effort to collaborate, um, but there was lots of friction in my scenario. I had my best buddy, which we got along very well. Um, but something that we could see happening, which really wasn't nice or pleasant to work within, was that lots of students had become, or they had already been like that. They started to just become people who said yes all the time to their tutors, um, which I understand, you know, your tutors know best, but there was barely any moments of, I could witness with some students that there were barely any moments where the student would counter what the tutor was suggesting because design can't be wrong. The technicalities can, um, but your, and your narrative and your research could be flawed, but the design itself might, you know, might not, might not, it's, it's up to debate. Yeah. Subjective, and yeah. And your tutor telling you what to do, realistically, sometimes the tutor doesn't know what the outcome as well. It's 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 an experiment, you know. We're assuming that this is going to work out, but if it doesn't, then it doesn't. And you should be able to problem solve yourself. But what we realised was there were tu- there were students who would just listen to tutors and say yes, and whenever they had a suggestion, it was always responses like, "Oh, that's a great idea. I was thinking of doing that too." And you could already immediately sense the insincerity and the, and the I don't want to say lie, but it is kind of like that. Um, and those students did inevitably get the better marks 
because they had followed what the tutor said. But I always said to myself, I'm not going to go to architecture school to become a product of my tutor. I'd rather, I just want to be my own designer. So that also came with its consequences where I was called stubborn um, because I would say no, because I would much rather work on something that I enjoy rather than something that my tutor suggested knowing that they like the design, but I'm going to hate the process because I'm not passionate of what I'm doing. Um, and I followed that through the whole three years. First year, got quite low marks um, and I got called stubborn and I got questioned on whether or not I should do architecture and um, whether, whether or not I was fit for the course. Pure, and this all purely stemmed from the fact that I said no and we just couldn't find middle ground. Um, and I, you could see in my work that I wasn't happy designing what I was designing. Yeah. Uh, but then third year came along and it was much better. Um, I was able to say no. And the thing is, it, it just sucked when you had a reason as to why you had done something. And it was just completely um, brushed aside purely because the tutor didn't like it. And they were putting things like preference in it and it was becoming subjective again where they just couldn't comment on something purely because they didn't like it. Yeah, it it sucks to see that outcome because if I came to a crit and I said um, I liked it as a reason as to why I did something, I know that's not going to be a good enough reason as to, it's it's not, they're not going to be content with that answer. There needs to be research, site, client and development to back up my argument. So I kind of expect the same from my tutors because it's 50 50 it's a conversation and um, i'm not there to, to have people tell me what to do i'm there to people for people to instruct how i could do something and then i try it out i experiment and realize you know what doesn't work out don't like it let's find something else you know it's a conversational sit down it's not one-sided i don't think and it shouldn't be um mm, do you think the tutors want to um students like you or do they want students that just say yes probably not like me (laughs) it sucks to hear it maybe the thing is i do make it sound like i'm really argumentative i'm not not that bad you know i do i do want a back and forth because it's a conversation again i look at practice i'm not here to expect my client to say yes to everything they're bound to inevitably say oh i'm not fond of this idea let's let's do something else or they'll bring their pinterest board and say i I really like this and you have to sit there and say yeah sure we'll do it because it's they're they're putting their money and time and effort to it Um, and you're the designer so it just doesn't make sense to me why students are just going to become yes yes like people pleasers yeah. where they say yes to their tutor all the time because sometimes you do have a situation where you need to suggest something to your client and say look with all my experience this isn't a good route to go down and if you've been saying yes to your tutors this whole time how likely are you to, to do that in practice i, I would say if looking point. at it relatively it's probably going to be less yeah so i would say a good balance you know there are many times where i've said you know what that's such a good idea why didn't i think of it i have said that multiple times but there have also been multiple times where i've stood my ground and said i really truly believe that the research i've done and the narrative that i have for my design justifies what what you see in front of you and i think you should learn to say you know what look she's confident and especially if you can present that confidently then I don't see what the issue is, unless again, there's practicality issues, there's technical issues where there is an actual right or wrong. 
then fair enough. But when it comes to design, it's a good balance. And I'd hope that tutors would like to encounter students like myself more than students who just say yes and they bring absolutely nothing to the table. And it's just what you said previously. So the last week that you know you gave feedback, you're now seeing the feedback that you had, you, you had given. It's quite boring, I would say, as a tutor as well, to just see yeah. what you've said verb physically in front of you. I, that's how I see it. And that's probably how I'll see it if I ever enter the academia side of architecture. I would love to have a student who says no and says, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't like it because of so-and-so, you know, I've done the research. I think it's really well justified. Then I'd have to take it as a pinch of salt and say, you know what, I need to look at, look at this objectively now. You know, the student has clearly done the research and their argument is, convi- I am convinced. But now, you know, I'm just saying that I don't like it. I don't want to turn into that product where, you know, I to, to the product that I literally just criticised about, what, half an hour ago, where tutors would just say, I don't like it and give that as a, as a reason as to why you can't do something. So yeah, I hope tutors become tutors who prefer students who challenge and not just students that say yes. Fantastic. Okay, productivity. How productive are students at university? You know, aren't people just chatting, you know, when they're in the studio and actually not getting much work done? I'm sure it happens sometimes. But I was just thinking after kind of what your opinion is on the sort of majority of students. Very quickly, people find a balance. So for me, I was in at 9am, out at 11pm every single day of the third year. And that might sound like, well, you're at university for like more than 12 hours. Yeah, I was, but I wasn't working the whole time. I wouldn't say it was unproductive, but I had multiple breaks where I would walk around and I'd speak to the first and second year students. Sometimes we would help them out. And it's a good break for us because we really it's really hard to work those many hours, like that many hours and actually be productive. If it, it, I gave in, the moment I said, I really need a break, I didn't question it because I could tell my body was asking me to stop. And I would go on multiple walks during the day and I have no regrets. And productivity wise, it just, it was, it was productive still. Uh, I would still do the same thing amongst all that stress. I would still do it again in third year because the moments of which where you are chatting with people, very likely that you're already talking about architecture anyways. Like it was the majority of the conversations that I was having between those breaks, majority of them were architecture related anyways. Oh, so what are you working on? What's your project about? And then we'd get some feedback and we'll give some feedback. It was still architecture related. So I never really looked back and said to myself, you know, I'm wasting my time. I could really go back and do work. No, it's, it's, again, it's the collaborative side. You need to have these conversations amongst your peers um, or you will go crazy (laughs) working on architecture 24 hours. It's, I don't think it affected my productivity. Could I have had less walks? Yes, I could have. But again, I don't look back and say to myself, I should more time on seven um, because it was a very much needed break or very much needed chat. And within the studio environment, I think that really does boost your your productivity anyways, which is, again, the whole distinction between functional space. I associated studio as my working place. So I that was that was a place, the location where my productivity peaked. It's more or less the case with most students. 
when you're in a place where everybody's designing and everybody's working on their portfolios, inevitably you start to want to do those things too. So yeah, productivity wise, I think I was okay. Um, and majority of students were very productive. There were obviously the odd student where they've chosen architecture on a whim and they're now regretting it, but they won't leave the course either because it's too late. And um, those students you never saw, they probably didn't turn up to crit. They probably failed a couple modules. It happens, I, I assume with many other courses too. You had many students who would just turn up to crits only um, and no tutorials. Um, but yeah, it, it, I would say the majority are very productive because majority of people entering architecture know that they want to do it. Yeah. And you had the odd few that decide they don't like it or they want to do, they want to do something else, which is fair enough. But overall, students who want to be there are productive. Students who don't want to be there are not. It's, it's, I would say it's quite simple. Yeah, no, fantastic. The last two questions. Why do universities insist on axonometrics? when you don't do this in practice? That is a good question. Um, I have yet to produce an axonometric drawing in my part one placement. Me too. And they, yeah, and I made many in my third year. I think it's the outcome expectation is different. You know, if you can make these drawings, then surely you can do so-and-so maybe an employer looks at it in that way you know if she's able to produce these drawings i mean she's got the skill set she's got the patience and she's willing to do something to that complexity to that complexity so maybe it looks like you're more employable rather than the actual outcome forget what your symmetry looks like it's the fact that you were able to do it and you were able to withhold the process amongst all the other stress um, that you have to deal with and yeah they look great like when I had my axonometrics up in, in exhibition they looked amazing and people were intrigued to look at it did they translate my idea the best no not really but they looked good so there's this idea I would say at university that things that just look good and look like you've spent so much time on it just mean that there's an associate, association with something good there as well. Like I look at exhibitions at the Bartlett, for example. Again, no shade, I'm just being direct. Majority of the time, I don't see a building um, in these final images. And it's just a lot of chaos, good chaos, but it's, there's lots happening in a drawing. That wow factor seems to be enough to show, you know, she, she'll be a good candidate or she or he will be a good candidate. Um, so that's why I think accelerometrics are a part of that process. It's it's the wow drawing, you know, the wow factor. It's to blow your waist, to catch your attention, and so you can see the rest of the design and the actual architect behind it. Yeah, I, when it comes to the workplace, again, accelerometrics, they're usually, I'm seeing they're only used for like marketing, to go onto the website, to upload onto Instagram. Um, the client's not asking for an axonometric. The no. client just wants a house built, like and built nice. That's that's about it. And whether you, or not you need an axonometric for it, I'd say probably not. They're they're okay with 3D models, and especially like with our practice, we uh, we use Bimex alongside Archicad, um, which allows for the client to download the app, and then they can just walk through the proposal. Yeah. Um, and they can use VR for it too. 
don't need an axiometric for at all. So when we have had axiometrics, it's usually for media marketing. That's about it. We don't really use it to help with the design process. I love the answer. Really do. I hope uh, people are listening to this. Um, My final question. How did university help with preparing you for practice? 50-50. Again, there was some input. Could have been better, of course. For me, we had in our third year a module called preparing for practice. So it's dedicated to prepare you for practice. Good things that came out of it was amongst all the submissions and my design um, modules, I was able to have a CV, a cover letter, and a portfolio, but that would have inevitably happened because of the other modules. But the CV and the cover letter, I don't think I would have done one until I graduated. And what was good is that that module did allow us to have to produce CVs um, of which we could get feedback from tutors and practicing architects from whilst still you know being at university and we're not actually applying some people were which is great you know if i had a and that started in january of second year uh, or third year sorry so if i wanted i had a cover letter i had a cv just need to update my portfolio and i could start applying for jobs in january of which most students were not doing across the country i would assume um some people had roles um job roles already confirmed because they had already applied during the year and so they were going to exhibitions smiling because they already had a job confirmed, which was great. So that is, I would say that it stemmed from preparing for practice, the module. Right. Um, but could it have been better? Definitely. And um, something that I've realized with my current practice is that, you know, my own legal rights, it would be great to know them um, before actually accepting a job offer. And, you know, the RIBA regulations, the expectations from a practice and what they should be sourcing for their employees and what they should be um, presenting and offering. It, it would be good to get an insight into it in university, you know, because I assume, you know, as a university, the last thing that you want is sending off your students, your graduated students, workplaces that don't even show the appreciation that they deserve. And you don't want your efforts as tutors to go to nothing as well. Um, but it's happened. It's completely happened. And what I realized in practice this year is that I need to read the RIBA code of conduct. I need to see what these practices are signing and what they are allegedly meeting, the policies that need they need to abide by, um, to know if they are actually meeting those demands, because sometimes they're not. I could have easily um, avoided situations by just simply knowing earlier on and for a module to claim that they're preparing you for practice, I think it'd be great to know, you know, what are the red flags in your contract? What should I look out for? You know, what should I ask in an interview? It's the very simple things. How can I prepare for an interview? If I, you know, what, what should I look out for? What, what, is there something that I can negotiate? You know, is there something that I can ask for that's absolutely normal, but you know, we've give, we've been given the impression that we shouldn't ask for it. Like something as simple as how how and what at what point should I ask for a pay rise? I don't know. So I just asked whenever I thought I deserved it. Um, but it's it's something as simple as that because you think to yourself, and I used to think this, and I think it's true. 
as as third year students, undergrads and part ones, we are at the bottom of the food chain when it comes to architecture. So how much actual, you know, right or how much of, of um, volume do you have in the conversation when it comes to the business and the employment side of it? You know, nothing. Um, and we learn absolutely nothing about um, the interview process and your contracts. I think, you know, it's as simple as I would say, have a couple of template contracts ready, get students to look at it and see, you know, what, what should yeah. they look out for? Look at example ones. It's, it, it's, it, look, it's not that hard. <laughs> and it's a frustration because it, it could just be done. And lots of architects, I would say, probably have gone through the same process, you know, where they've had their ups and downs and times of which they would say, I wish I knew this beforehand. I wish somebody had told me. So why is it so difficult to try and implement it into your education, which has a whole module, for example, at Westminster dedicated to preparing you for practice? Um, I think it makes total sense to include things like contract. When is it a time to say no? You know, what can I say no to? What are my responsibilities as a part one? What am I expected to do? When do I know when I'm doing too much? I wish somebody had told me those things because, you know, I've, I've experienced some things at current practice, which I've realized, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm doing more than what part one should be doing, but I've got nobody to give me that reassurance that, you know, whether or not that is correct, because there's nobody there to really help you out once you've left university. As I mean, you might have a very supportive practice, then maybe you're lucky, but some people don't. Um, so it would be great for university to give those foundations about practice to students, because what ends up happening is, like myself, you have part ones who are, you know, taken advantage of, maybe to the extent of exploited, because they just didn't know what they were legally allowed to request for and what they're actually expected by the ARBA and the RIBA to actually yeah. do as a part one. Um, those things definitely can be covered by university. It's just, again, um, they just need to take the initiative for it. No, you're right. I think there's definitely some gaps there in that preparing for practice that you've really mm. highlighted. And you're right, the university doesn't know what practice you're going to go into. You could be going into a very, very small practice where everything's going to be thrown at you and knowing when it to say no is a really good thing you could be going into a huge practice where you know there's some established um setups and maybe you're, you're slightly better protected but there can be other issues other issues there so i think what you said there um i, I would love to get you back on the show um soon <laughs> absolutely and um, I just really want to thank you for being on the second series of the Brook Architect podcast. And thank you for being so open and honest. No worries. I mean, I hope everybody has, who is listening, who has gotten this far, um, has learned something new. The intention for me on joining you today is, again, to give an insight for part ones and fresh graduates. Um, and even for those which who are thinking of studying architecture, um, because you really need to immerse yourself to get a really good idea of what you're getting into. But I hope everybody who is still in university or will be going to university um, takes a good break and they, you know, does a little research, very light, passive research in the background. Um, and yeah, good luck to everybody on what they have planned in September. 
no thank you so much and if you're thinking of going into architecture school listen to this episode over the summer prepare yourself please share subscribe and comment to support the channel The Broke Architect